Welcome to the track. I'm Steve Clark. Later in the show, Julian Grimway tells us about the recent exhibit in the museum that he's had a hand in actually getting fired up again at Delahaye. But before that, the Wellington is the centrepiece of the Brooklyn's Aircraft Factory exhibition. Arthur Robert is the only Wellington still in existence that actually saw active service during World War II and the only one left that was built here at Brooklyn's. The Loch Ness Wellington 2020 project have been looking at its past and discovering new facts about the aircraft while commemorating its past. Tim Morris spoke to Jack Waterfall, Vic Atwood and Rachel Kellett from the project. Rachel is the niece of Wing Commander Richard Kellett who was the commanding officer at the Battle of Heligoland Blight on 18th December 1939. Here she takes up the story. The Battle of Heligoland Blight was the first air battle of the Second World War. It was a strange battle uh, because they were under very, very strict instructions. When the War Cabinet were anxious to obtain the sinking of German ships, but our objective was simple, but silly, according to Richard. Um, no civilian may be killed or injured, and only naval ships could be attacked at sea. We were virtually forbidden to drop our bombs on land. Um, they, they set off um, 24 Wellingtons um, in, uh, in four battle flights on December the 3rd from Mildenhall, led by Wing Commander Kellett, my uncle Richard. Um, uh, uh, they approached Heligoland from the north, turned south, saw warships at anchor, but faced considerable flak both from the batteries on the islands and the warships. The Wellingtons released their bombs and Hitz claimed one cruiser and two trawlers and one flank battery was damaged. Um, however, some uh, four Messerschmitts were, were scrambled and uh, the Luftwaffe successfully were fought off by gun, uh, turret gunners. And according to Richard, they escaped in a cloud before eight following Messerschmitts could intercept. The, the same happened, I think, um, in Wilhelmshaven the, the following day. I, I think the best thing to say about it, en enormous lessons were learnt, and this was a daylight flight, and I, there were no daylight battles after this. Um, moving back to Arthur Robert, uh, now I know it took part in a few other uh, missions before the incident on Hogmanay in December 1940. Perhaps you could tell us that what happened. Um, N2980, which is R for Robert, was transferred to training duties at Lossiemouth. On New Year's Eve in 1940, pilot squadron leader Marwood Elton and pilot officer Slater took off in the late afternoon with a crew of six. After taking off from Lossiemouth, the snowstorm increased and one of the, one of the Wimpies, which is another name for the Wellingtons, two engines failed. Flying after Robert became increasingly challenging. Losing height, Marwood Elton ordered the crew, including the trainee navigators, to, to, to bail out. And five of the crew bailed out successfully, but the rear gunner, Sergeant Fensom's parachute, failed to open, and he died, sadly. All the others landed safely. Uh, Marwood Elton and his co-pilot Slater fought to keep her aloft, Seeing a large stretch of water, they skillfully brought the wimpy down and ditched in the ice-cold lock. The two pilots were able to get out on the wing. 
where they launched their inflatable rubber dinghy and paddled ashore. They landed right next to the A82 road, where a, where a truck gave them a lift to nearby Inverness, just in time, it turned out, for both men to join the New Year's Eve celebrations. Meanwhile, Arthur Roberts sank 230 feet into the bottom of Loch Ness. And that's where it stayed for some 40-odd years. Uh, what happened then in the early 80s? There was a character called um, Robert Rhines from Boston. He was a patent lawyer and quite wealthy. And I think his early he, he was actually a Nessie fanatic. And uh, he came over more than once. And in 19... 76 he brought over a young sonar expert called marty klein and marty klein and his team were doing a geological survey with their sonar and it wasn't until they got back to america and analyzed their traces that they realized that they'd picked up this wellington the problem was of course in 1978 um it was then common knowledge where it was so the time uh, Robin Holmes arrived on the scene in the early 80s there was a fair bit of vandalism that had gone on you know trawlers with grappling hooks and all sorts had vandalized the old Wellington and his big worry was that you know we've, we've, we've got to get on and recover this Wellington because there's you know there's going to be nothing left and um, and so there were various dives so there is quite a lot of un underwater footage, which we have in our possession now of those early dives in 81. And then Robin managed to get the Loch Ness Wellington Association together, which, uh, which its membership included Richard Kellett and Paul Harris. And they did the lifting in, um, in, in September 1985. And that wasn't easy either because um, forward, they had a few little disasters, but they did manage to land it on the 21st of September, 1985. And I think there was quite a large team of enthusiasts from Brooklands, which were probably related to British Aerospace, who were there, you know, looking through that wreckage. It was, the wreckage was washed down loaded onto articulated lorries and driven a 560 miles down to Weybridge, where it, where it is now. Um, it was a massive undertaking to restore the aircraft, uh, probably for the next 10 years or so, uh, involving around 70 different companies were involved in the restoration, um, but largely by engineering apprentices and volunteers. Uh, did the majority of the work on it. So it's an absolutely fantastic effort to get it into the condition that we do see it today. But uh, let's go back briefly to um, Heligoland again. Now, as, as a result, result of that, I believe the Heligoland 39 project was set up. I was given a poster. All these Wellingtons were being shot into the sea. And that was a German propaganda painting depicting the Battle of Heligoland Bight. And me and my partners in the, in the early project, they were a little bit aghast when I suggested we go in a worldwide search 
for 157 families. But they were persuaded eventually to do that. And the Heligoland 39 project, we actually managed to celebrate the beginning of the 80th anniversary year at Ely Cathedral and the actual 80th anniversary of the battle at the RF Memorial at Runnymede, followed by excellent afternoon tea and cake at Brooklands. We did manage on both occasions to get, what, 80-odd relatives to those events. And, um, and I think the icing on the cake was the actual meeting at Brooklands because we took over the Vicar Suite there and the atmosphere there was just electric. You know. So how did that lead on to the, the next project, the Loch Ness Wellington 2020? Well, Tim Harris actually visited me and Evie several times, you know, in the lead up to all this. He was then filling me in on Paul Harris's link with Arthur Robert. And we realised that this 80th anniversary of the ditching was in the pipeline. And we said, should we do something about this, you know, just to finish off? And therefore, I think we've got to credit Tim with actually sparking this little idea off. Vic has served a really good purpose in connecting the project with all sorts of people, all sorts of useful people up in Inverness. I think we've, we're finding the, in, the enthusiasm for all this up in Inverness sort of tremendous, really. That, that, for me, that is becoming the reward. We are... Over time, we are recovering a lot of material relating to the recovery of, of Arthur Robert Wood that has been neglected. Um, but there's a, a lot of stuff relating to that recovery has been lost, but we're recovering some of it. And that needs to be passed on to the next generation somehow. 28th of October, um, Nine Squadron had organized for a, a Typhoon Eurofighter to do a fly past and Scottish TV covered it. And Nicola McAlley, who was the presenter on that program, put the emphasis on Arthur Robert being a Loch Ness legend. And I think that is true, really. Do you have anything planned specifically for the actual anniversary day, which uh, I believe is New Year's Eve? Yes, we do. Um, we've, 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 we've had a service prepared at the, at the cathedral done in advance because of covid but that will be released on new year's eve as i understand it at exactly that time at three o'clock at the time of the ditching so we had the british legion representing the past and we had the atc representing the future and one of the points that was made during the service was that the atc members that were there were not much younger than some of these people that were fly physically flying these aircraft during the war once it, with the, the epidemic and that is over, hopefully there will be an exhibition in the uh, museum at Inverness, um, probably for a, approximately a three-month period. And then near Lossiemouth, actually at uh, Kinloss, there is an aviation museum that specialises in the Murray-Perth area. And it, we hope that uh, once that they've finished their stints with it, it's going to um, Moravia. Uh, which also got a website uh, on that's referred to on our website as a permanent permanent exhibit. There is um, a diary day already in 
for us to meet at Brooklands on the 24th of September 2021. And that will be the final day of what we hope will be a five-day UK and international tour, starting up in the Highlands on the 20th of September, cruising Loch Ness on the 21st of September, which will be the anniversary of the lifting. And then we're going to land up in Brooklands for a nice little uh, lunch on that, the Friday at the end of that week. And so, so I'm hoping to persuade some of the Americans to come over, plus our contacts in Wilhelmshaven. So we've got a German element. And anybody who is really linked to Arthur Robert in terms of the families that we've found in the previous projects. I understand there's going to be a little bit of money involved. Um, how are we actually funding that? Well, we have a challenge in as much as we, we want to make a very good quality documentary, film documentary about this history. We also want to erect a commemorative plaque. And we think we're going to need a budget in the region of 15 to 20,000 pounds to do, you know, do something really nice. Thank you. And if you go to Loch Ness Wellington 2020.org, you can find all about the project there. And also you can find that crowdfunding QR code. And of course, if you go to Brooklyn's Museum, you can see Arthur Robert as a centerpiece in the aircraft factory exhibition. Plastic Bertrand and his 1977 hit Sa Plan Pour Moi. Now, why are we playing this tune? Well, it actually features in a 2015 film uh, called The Gentleman's Wager 2. It's notable for featuring some A-list movie stars and some cameo appearances by uh, motor racers, including Jensen Button and Mika Hakkinen. But the movie's uh, true star is a beautiful blue Delahaye that uh, has recently arrived at Brooklyn's Museum and can be seen uh, on display there at the moment. And uh, one of our volunteers and uh, Brooklyn's members, committee member, uh, Julian Grimwade, tinkered with it with his uh, spanners and uh, tried to get the vehicle going again. Did he succeed? 
Well, we'll find out when we talk to Julian and he tells us a little bit about the film and even more about the history of the cast. It was um, requested by Johnny Walker, the whiskey company itself, now owned by Diageo, of course, to be in a promotional video starring Jude Law and Giancarlo Giannini um, called The Gentleman's Wager, where the owner of the car, an elderly Italian gentleman, um, offered it to Jude Law. He could have the car if he could drive it to Monte Carlo in a certain time. And of course, all sorts of adventures occurred and it broke down and he met pretty ladies who'd also broken down and the occasional racing driver in a cameo role. And it was actually a very nicely made video um, and, it, and it was used for promoting, obviously, the Johnny Walker brand around the world. So it became quite famous to, to whiskey drinkers, if nobody else. This is a car that's now owned by Robbie Walker, a member of the Walker whiskey family, Johnny Walker whiskey, uh, and was owned by his father, Rob Walker, who, as you may know, was a very famous team owner in the 60s and 70s in Formula Grand Prix, Formula One, and etc. The car originally came to Brooklands in 1936. It, it was bought by a man called Clark, T.G. Clark, and raced at the Tourist Trophy in Ards in Ireland. Um, and then again in Donington later that year, where it came 10th in the Donington Grand Prix. Uh, in 1937, it, it moved on to Prince Chula, who was the White Mouse Racing Stable. And he bought it for his cousin, Prince Beera, to drive. Prince Beera, obviously, was a very famous racer. Uh, and that's when it was in the blue, the Beera blue, with the uh, White Mouse logo on the side. He ran it at the PAL, which that year was a, a Grand Prix for sports cars. They didn't have Grand Prix cars that year. Um, he only did six laps and something went wrong. Um, but Donington, he did a 12-hour sports race, uh, which they won easily with Dobbs as a co-driver. Dobbs was a well-known Donington driver and indeed the Brooklands. Um, they also raced at the 500k race at Brooklands that year and actually managed a, a lap of 126 miles an hour, which was pretty good. In 1938, it went back to the agent, um, Count Hayden, um, based in London, who lent it to various people that year. Uh, he, he himself raced at the Antwerp Grand Prix, which again was for sports cars that year. And he managed to come fifth, which was pretty good. And he also lent it to, amongst other people, uh, Mrs. E.M. Thomas, who uh, took the race to uh, the car, rather, to Crystal Palace and won a ladies' race there. So it has got some ladies' history as well. So a good history of lots of different tracks in its first three years of its life. Uh, at the end of that season, it went back to the showroom and it attracted the attention of a very young Rob Walker. He was walking past the, the showroom in London and noticed the, the Delahaye in the window. And he already had a Delahaye, he had a Delacay coupe that his mother had bought him. But he was very taken with this uh, Delacaye 135S and he actually bought it on, on the Never Never because although he almost had enough money, uh, his, his yearly allowance, because he was still a student at university, wasn't enough to cover it. So he actually bought it on the, what we call the Never Never in those days, higher purchased. Uh, and the car was his. Uh, he did a few events the first year. He went to Siston Park Speed Trials and came second in class. 
That was his first thing. And he, he lent it to other people as well. He lent it to Dobson again, who uh, raced it at Brooklands, and Vera again, who raced it at Crystal Palace. Um, and then in July that year, quite amazingly, he just set off to go and do Le Mans with it. He had uh, an automatic gearbox, the Kotel gearbox, the electric one fitted, because it's much easier to use than the manual gearbox um, that was in the car when he bought it. But he'd, uh, he'd cut his hands, so he thought that the, um, the Kotal would be easier to drive, and indeed it is very easy. It's just like a little switch on the dashboard to change gear. So he entered the race with uh, his co-driver, Ian Connell, um, really quite unprepared, and, and they set off to do the 24-hour. Uh, they immediately ran into a problem because the exhaust pipe was blowing and the exhaust is actually on the driver's side on this car. So the exhaust fumes were burning their feet. Uh, Rob Walker countered this by driving in espadrilles, which he soaked in the bucket of water to keep his feet cold. And uh, um, Ian Connell was actually burnt his feet a little bit, so he didn't drive quite as much. So Rob Walker actually did 18 hours of the 24 and they finished, and they finished eighth, and they came third in class, which was quite remarkable, really, for a totally amateur team. Uh, and as a touch of style, Rob Walker drove the race either in a tweed jacket or in a pinstripe suit, because he was, after all, a gentleman racer. So then, of course, the proceedings were interrupted by the war, and it did race after the war, not, not with Rob Walker in it. He, he got married just after the war and promised his wife he wouldn't ever race again although he did the odd sprint and hill climb. Um, but the car went on. It was driven by Rolt at um, the Mans in 49, but it didn't finish. Um, again, it was entered by Rob Walker, but it was, again, rather an amateur effort. He hadn't even changed the big ends from 10 years before, so it, it didn't last. It broke down at about 3 o'clock in the morning on the Sunday. He did race again in 1950. He lent it to a friend who raced it around Europe a bit and did Le Mans and came back. But the problem then was he, this friend had fitted a, a false petrol tank under the car and it was um, discovered at English Customs that this petrol tank was full of 3,000 Swiss watches. So the car duly got impounded and Rob Walker actually had to buy the car back again from the, uh, the Customs and Excise. So that was an interesting checkered part of its history. Yeah, the, the car fell into a bit, bit of disuse after that, um, and it went into a collection, and Rob Walker actually bought it back in the 70s and, and rebuilt it completely uh, and kept it ever, ever since. And now it's been handed on to his son, Robbie Walker, who I had the, the fortune to meet a few years ago at a, a memorial to his father, which they held at Dorking, which was fun. We drove all sorts of unlikely cars around the centre of Dorking. And a lot of the cars that Rob Walker himself had owned as part of his race team. So that was great fun. But Robbie Walker, when I met him, expressed an interest in bringing me the Delahaye to Brooklands because of its history. And it seemed to be a logical place for it to be. Um, and I was instrumental in getting a conversation going between the Robbie and the museum. And we got the car there just over a year ago. Unfortunately, at that time, it wasn't working. The last time I'd heard of it trying to be run was at Goodwood I think in 2017 and it, it conked out and when we got it to the museum the, the symptoms of it not running were that the uh, it ran when it was cold but it would cut out when it got warm which is an indication of a magneto failing so the magneto was the first thing to check when it got here 
and Rob and the museum asked me if I wouldn't mind having a look at it as I've got cars with similar uh, magnetos in them. I'd very quickly found that, yes, the magneto was faulty. So it was sent off for a rebuild uh, and it arrived back. But of course, we were in the depths of COVID when it came back. So we had to wait until the restrictions weren't quite so fierce. And I could wander in and go into the shed and check the car out. And obviously, when a, an important car, an important old car, hasn't run for well four or five years, you have to be a bit careful with it. So we did all sorts of checks on it. We sent the oil off to be checked at the place at Bista, and we looked inside with an endoscope in the bores and into the crankcase. Um, and we checked the time it was accurate and the marks on the wheels were where they should be and so on. Um, drained it of petrol, cleared it all out fresh petrol and pump that through and then we refitted the uh the, the freshly rebuilt magneto and curiously the, the firing order was all over the place the leads were all marked up wrong the cat was lined up wrong but having worked all that out we put it back together how i thought it should be and um second flick of the switch when we finally got it outside and ready to run fresh petrol it fired up um and it seemed to run beautifully but we didn't drive it that day. We put it back in the shed because we'd arranged for Robbie Walker himself to come down and drive it, test drive it on the finishing straight that we have now at Brooklands. And he came down on a rather damp morning, but very joyously the car, thank God, started first flick. Uh, we waited for it to warm in. Robbie jumped in. I thought he'd cautiously go round, instead of which he was sliding the tail merrily round the finishing straight, uh, driving it with quite some gusto. And it behaved faultlessly. Uh, he came in covered in mud, grinning madly, uh, and said, would I like a go? So, of course, I leapt on that and had a little go as well, and not quite as quickly as Robbie. Um, but it's a lovely car to drive, very, very easy. And it, it seems to be running very well now. I think it'll need a little bit more testing and a bit longer, maybe a run on the road in the, in the spring when the weather's a bit better. But it's another car that's in the museum that is up and up and running and will be available to be seen at events. Brooklyn's normally welcomes the new year with a massive classic car gathering, which has attracted up to 7,000 people and over 1,500 cars in the past. This year, of course, uh, the museum is closed. However, the uh, classic car gathering that was planned has been moved to Easter, so look out on the museum website for news of that coming up. In the meantime, I wish you all a happy new year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>